Chapter Two, Part Two of the Quest of the Historical Jesus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Quest of the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer, translated by William Montgomery. Chapter Two, Part Two. Hermann Samuel Rimarus. The Lord's Supper again was no new institution but merely an episode at the last paschal meal of the kingdom which was passing away and was intended quote, as an anticipatory celebration of the passover of the new kingdom Close quote. a lord's supper in our sense cut loose from the passover would have been inconceivable to jesus and not less so to his disciples it is useless to appeal to the miracles any more than to the sacraments as evidence for the founding of a new religion. In the first place, we have to remember what happens in the case of miracles handed down by tradition. That Jesus effected cures, which in the eyes of his contemporaries were miraculous, is not to be denied. Their purpose was to prove him to be the Messiah. He forbade these miracles to be made known, even in cases where they could not possibly be kept hidden, quote, with the sole purpose of making people more eager to talk of them. Other miracles, however, have no basis in fact, but owe their place in the narrative to the feeling that the miracle stories of the Old Testament must be repeated in the case of Jesus, but on a grander scale. He did no really miraculous works. Otherwise, the demands for a sign would be incomprehensible. In Jerusalem, when all the people were looking eagerly for an overwhelming manifestation of his messiahship, what a tremendous effect a miracle would have produced, if only a single miracle had been publicly, convincingly, undeniably performed by Jesus before all the people on one of the great days of the feast. Such is human nature that all the people would at once have flocked to his standard. For his popular uprising, however, he waited in vain. Twice he believed that it was near at hand. The first time was when he was sending out the disciples, and said to them, Ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Matthew chapter 10, verse 23. He thought that, at the preaching of the disciples, the people would flock to him from every quarter and immediately proclaim him Messiah, but his expectation was disappointed. The second time, he thought to bring about the decisive issue in Jerusalem. He made his entry riding on an ass's colt, that the messianic prophecy of Zechariah might be fulfilled. And the people actually did cry, Hosanna to the Son of God! Relying on the support of his followers, he might now, he thought, bid defiance to the authorities. In the temple, he arrogates to himself supreme power, and in glowing words, calls for an open revolt against the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, on the ground that they have shut the doors of the kingdom of heaven, and forbidden others to go in. There is no doubt now that he will carry the people with him. Confident in the success of his cause, he closes the great incendiary harangue in Matthew chapter 23, with the words, Truly from henceforth ye shall not see me again, until ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, that is, until they should hail him as Messiah. 
but the people in Jerusalem refused to rise, as the Galileans had refused at the time when the disciples were sent out to rouse them. The council prepared for vigorous action. The voluntary concealment by which Jesus had thought to whet the eagerness of the people became involuntary. Before his arrest, he was overwhelmed with dread, and on the cross he closed his life with the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Quote, this avowal cannot, without violence, be interpreted otherwise than as meaning that God had not aided him and his aim and purpose as he had hoped. That shows that it had not been his purpose to suffer and die, but to establish an earthly kingdom and deliver the Jews from political oppression, and in that God's help had failed him. Close quote. For the disciples, this turn of affairs meant the destruction of all the dreams for the sake of which they had followed Jesus. For if they had given up anything on his account, it was only in order to receive it again an hundredfold when they should openly take their places in the eyes of all the world as the friends and ministers of the Messiah, as the rulers of the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus never disabused them of this sensuous hope but, on the contrary, confirmed them in it. When he put an end to the quarrel about preeminence, and when he answered the request of the sons of Zebedee, he did not attack the assumption that there were to be thrones and power, but only addressed himself to the question how men were in the present to establish their claims to that position of authority. All this implies that the time of the fulfillment of these hopes was not thought of by Jesus and his disciples as at all remote. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, for example, he says, Truly I say unto you, there are some standing here who shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There is no justification for twisting this about or explaining it away. It simply means that Jesus promises the fulfillment of all messianic hopes before the end of the existing generation. Thus, the disciples were prepared for anything rather than that which actually happened. Jesus had never said a word to them about his dying and rising again. Otherwise, they would not have so played the coward at his death, nor have been so astonished at his resurrection. These three or four sayings referring to these events must, therefore, have been put into his mouth later, in order to make it appear that he had foreseen these events in his original plan. How, then, did they get over this apparently annihilating blow? By falling back upon the second form of the Jewish messianic hope. Hitherto, their thoughts, like those of their master, had been dominated by the political ideal of the prophets the scion of David's line, who would appear as the political deliverer of the nation. But alongside of that there existed another messianic expectation, which transferred everything to the supernatural sphere. Appearing first in Daniel, this expectation can still be traced in the Apocalypses, in Justin's Dialogue with Trypho, and in certain rabbinic sayings. According to these, Rymarus makes use especially of the statements of Trypho. The Messiah is to appear twice, once in human lowliness, the second time upon the clouds of heaven, when the first sestema, as Rymarus calls it, was annihilated by the death of Jesus, 
the disciples brought forward the second and gathered followers who shared their expectation of a second coming of jesus the messiah in order to get rid of the difficulty of the death of jesus they gave it the significance of a spiritual redemption which had not previously entered their field of vision or that of jesus himself but this spiritual interpretation of his death would not have helped them if they had not also invented the resurrection immediately after the death of jesus indeed such an idea was far from their thoughts they were in deadly fear and kept close within doors Quote, soon however one and another ventures to slip out they learn that no judicial search is being made for them Close quote. then they consider what is to be done they did not take kindly to the idea of returning to their old haunts on their journeyings the companions of the messiah had forgotten how to work they had seen that the preaching of the kingdom of god will keep a man even when they had been sent out without wallet or money they had not lacked the women who are mentioned in luke chapter eight verses two and three had made it their business to make good provision for the messiah and his future ministers why not then continue this mode of life they would surely find a sufficient number of faithful souls who would join them in directing their hopes towards a second coming of the messiah and while awaiting the future glory would share their possessions with them so they stole the body of jesus and hid it and proclaimed to all the world that he would soon return they prudently waited however for fifty days before making this announcement in order that the body if it should be found might be unrecognizable what was much in their favor was the complete disorganization of the jewish state had there been an efficient police administration the disciples would not have been able to plan this fraud and organize their communistic fellowship but as it was the new society was not even subjected to any annoyance in consequence of the remarkable death of a married couple who were buried from the apostle's house and the brotherhood was even allowed to confiscate their property to its own uses it appears then that the hope of the parousia was the fundamental thing in primitive christianity which was a product of that hope much more than of the teaching of jesus accordingly the main problem of primitive dogmatics was the delay of the parousia already in paul's time the problem was pressing and he had to set to work in second thessalonians to discover all possible and impossible reasons why the second coming should be delayed rimarus mercilessly exposes the position of the apostle who was obliged to fob people off somehow or other the author of second peter has a much clearer notion of what he would be at and undertakes to restore the confidence of christendom once for all with the sophism of the thousand years which are in the sight of god as one day ignoring the fact that in the promise the reckoning was by man's years not by god's Quote, nevertheless it served the turn of the apostles so well with those simple early christians that after the first believers had been bemused with it and the period originally fixed had elapsed the christians of later generations including fathers of the church could continue ever after to feed themselves with empty hopes the saying of christ about the generation which should not die out before his return clearly fixes this event at no very distant date 
but since jesus has not yet appeared upon the clouds of heaven quote, these words must be strained into meaning not that generation but the jewish people thus by exegetical art they are saved for ever for the jewish race will never die out Close quote. in general however quote, the theologians of the present day skim lightly over the eschatological material in the gospels because it does not chime in with their views and assign to the coming of christ upon the clouds quite a different purpose from that which it bears in the teaching of christ and his apostles inasmuch as the non-fulfillment of its eschatology is not admitted our christianity rests upon a fraud in view of this fact what is the evidential value of any miracle even if it could be held to be authentic quote, no miracle would prove that two and two make five or that a circle has four angles and no miracles however numerous could remove a contradiction which lies on the surface of the teachings and records of christianity Close quote. nor is there any weight in the appeal to the fulfillment of prophecy for the cases in which matthew countersigns it with the words that the scripture might be fulfilled are all artificial and unreal and for many incidents the stage was set by jesus or his disciples or the evangelists with the deliberate purpose of presenting to the people a scene from the fulfillment of prophecy the sole argument which could save the credit of christianity would be a proof that the parousia had really taken place at the time for which it was announced and obviously no such proof can be produced such is Rymaris's reconstruction of the history we can well understand that his work must have given offence when it appeared for it is a polemic not an objective historical study but we have no right simply to dismiss it in a word as a deistic production as otto schmiedel for example does it is time that Rymaris came to his own and that we should recognize a historical performance of no mean order in this piece of deistic polemics his work is perhaps the most splendid achievement in the whole course of the historical investigation of the life of jesus for he was the first to grasp the fact that the world of thought in which jesus moved was essentially eschatological there is some justification for the animosity which flames up in his writing this historical truth had taken possession of his mind with such overwhelming force that he could no longer understand his contemporaries and could not away with their profession that their beliefs were as they professed to be directly derived from the preaching of jesus what added to the offence was that he saw the eschatology in a wrong perspective he held that the messianic ideal which dominated the preaching of jesus was that of the political ruler the son of david all his other mistakes are the consequence of this fundamental error it was of course a mere makeshift hypothesis to derive the beginnings of christianity from an imposture historical science was not at that time sufficiently advanced to lead even the man who had divined the fundamentally eschatological character of the preaching of jesus onward to the historical solution of the problem it needed more than a hundred and twenty years to fill in the chasm which Rymaris had been forced to bridge with that makeshift hypothesis of his 
In the light of the clear perception of the elements of the problem which Rimarus had attained, the whole movement of theology, downward to Johannes Weiss, appears retrograde. In all its work, the thesis is ignored or obscured that Jesus, as a historical personality, is to be regarded not as the founder of a new religion, but as the final product of the eschatological and apocalyptic thought of late Judaism. Every sentence of Johannes Weiss's De Predict Hesu vom Reichi Gottes from 1892 is a vindication, a rehabilitation, of Reimarus as a historical thinker. Even so, the traveler on the plain sees from afar the distant range of mountains. Then he loses sight of them again. His way winds slowly upwards through the valleys, drawing ever nearer to the peaks, until, at last, at a turn of the path, they stand before him, not in the shapes which they had seemed to take from the distant plain, but in their actual forms. Rimarus was the first, after eighteen centuries of misconception, to have an inkling of what eschatology really was. Then theology lost sight of it again, and it was not until after the lapse of more than a hundred years that it came in view of eschatology once more, now in its true form, so far as that can be historically determined, and only after it had been led astray, almost to the last, in all its historical researches, by the sole mistake of Rimarus, the assumption that the eschatology was earthly and political in character. Thus, theology shared at least the error of the man whom it knew only as a deist, not as an historian, and whose true greatness was not recognized even by Strauss, though he raised a literary monument to him. The solution offered by Rimarus may be wrong. The data of observation from which he starts out are, beyond question, right, because the primary datum of all is genuinely historical. He recognized that two systems of messianic expectation were present, side by side, in late Judaism. He endeavored to bring them into mutual relations in order to represent the actual movement of the history. In so doing, he made the mistake of placing them in consecutive order, ascribing to Jesus the political son of David conception, and to the apostles, after his death, the apocalyptic system based on Daniel, instead of superimposing one upon the other, in such a way that the messianic king might coincide with the Son of Man, and the ancient prophetic conception might be inscribed within the circumference of the Daniel-descended apocalyptic, and raised along with it to the supersensuous plane. But what matters the mistake in comparison with the fact that the problem was really grasped? Rimarus felt that the absence in the preaching of Jesus of any definition of the principal term, the kingdom of God, in conjunction with the great and rapid success of his preaching, constituted a problem, and he formulated the conception that Jesus was not a religious founder and teacher, but purely a preacher. He brought the synoptic and Johannine narratives into harmony by practically leaving the latter out of account. The attitude of Jesus towards the law, and the process by which the disciples came to take up a freer attitude, was grasped and explained by him so accurately that modern historical science does not need to add a word. 
but would be well pleased if at least half the theologians of the present day had got as far further he recognized that primitive christianity was not something which grew so to speak out of the teaching of jesus but that it came into being as a new creation in consequence of events and circumstances which added something to the preaching which it did not previously contain and that baptism and the lord's supper in the historical sense of these terms were not instituted by jesus but created by the early church on the basis of certain historical assumptions again Rymarus felt that the fact that the event of easter was first proclaimed at pentecost constituted a problem and he sought a solution for it he recognized further that the solution of the problem of the life of jesus calls for a combination of the methods of historical and literary criticism he felt that merely to emphasize the part played by eschatology would not suffice but that it was necessary to assume a creative element in the tradition to which he ascribed the miracles the stories which turn on the fulfillment of messianic prophecy the universalistic traits and the predictions of the passion and the resurrection like vreda too he feels that the prescription of silence in the case of miracles of healing and of certain communications to the disciples constitutes a problem which demands solution still more remarkable is his eye for exegetical detail he has an unfailing instinct for pregnant passages like matthew chapter ten verse twenty three matthew chapter sixteen verse twenty eight which are crucial for the interpretation of large masses of the history the fact is there are some who are historians by the grace of god who from their mother's womb have an instinctive feeling for the real they follow through all the intricacy and confusion of reported fact the pathway of reality like a stream which despite the rocks that encumber its course and the windings of its valley find its way inevitably to the sea no erudition can supply the place of this historical instinct but erudition sometimes serves a useful purpose inasmuch as it produces in its possessors the pleasing belief that they are historians and thus secures their services for the cause of history in truth they are at best merely doing the preliminary spade work of history collecting for a future historian the dry bones of fact from which with the aid of his natural gift he can recall the past to life more often however the way in which erudition seeks to serve history is by suppressing historical discoveries as long as possible and leading out into the field to oppose the one true view an army of possibilities by arraying these in support of one another it finally imagines that it has created out of possibilities a living reality this obstructive erudition is the special prerogative of theology in which even at the present day a truly marvellous scholarship often serves only to blind the eyes of elementary truths and to cause the artificial to be preferred to the natural and this happens not only with those who deliberately shut their minds against new impressions but also with those whose purpose is to go forward and to whom their contemporaries look up as leaders it was a typical illustration of this fact when Zimla rose up and slew Rymarus in the name of scientific theology. 
Rymarus had discredited progressive theology. Students, so Zimla tells us in his preface, became unsettled and sought other callings. The great Halle theologian, born in 1725, the pioneer of the historical view of the canon, the precursor of Bauer in the reconstruction of primitive Christianity, was urged to do away with the offense. As origin of yore with Celsus, so Zimla takes Rymarus sentence by sentence, in such a way that if his work were lost, it could be rediscovered from the refutation. The fact was that Zimla had nothing in the nature of a complete or well-articulated argument to oppose to him. Therefore, he inaugurated in his reply the yes but theology, which thereafter, for more than three generations, while it took itself the most various modifications, imagined that it had finally got rid of Rymarus and his discovery. Rymarus, so ran the watchword of the guerrilla warfare which Zimla waged against him, cannot be right, for he is one-sided. Jesus and his disciples employed two methods of teaching, one sensuous, pictorial, drawn from the sphere of Jewish ideas by which they adapted their meaning to the understanding of the multitude, and endeavored to raise them to a higher way of thinking. And alongside of that, a purely spiritual teaching which was independent of that kind of imagery. Both methods of teaching continued to be used side by side because there were always contemporary representatives of the two degrees of capability and the two kinds of temperament. Quote, this is historically so certain that the fragmentist's attack must inevitably be defeated at this point because he takes account only of the sensuous representation. But his attack was not defeated. What happened was that, owing to the respect in which Zimla was held and the absolute incapacity of contemporary theology to overtake the long stride forward made by Rymarus, his work was neglected, and the stimulus which it was capable of imparting failed to take effect. He had no predecessors, neither had he any disciples. His work was one of those supremely great works which pass and leave no trace, because they are before their time, to which later generations pay a just tribute of admiration, but owe no gratitude. Indeed, it would be truer to say that Rymarus hung a millstone about the neck of the rising theological science of his time. He avenged himself on Zimla by shackling his faith in historical theology, and even in the freedom of science in general. By the end of the eighth decade of the century, the Halle professor was beginning to retrace his steps, was becoming more and more disloyal to the cause which he had formerly served, and he finally went so far as to give his approval to Volner's edict for the regulation of religion in 1788. His friends attributed this change of front to senility. He died in 1791. Thus, the magnificent overture in which are announced all the motifs of the future historical treatment of the life of Jesus breaks off with a sudden discord, remains isolated and incomplete, and leads to nothing further. End of chapter 2